So my um, son has a very favorite gift that he got this last year from his uncle who lives in Austin, my husband's brother. And it's a lanyard, and on the lanyard are several different um, animal calls. There's, of course, a duck call, and a turkey call, and a wild hog call, and a coyote call, and an owl call. And he will walk around the house using these different animal calls or out in the backyard. And I've kind of wondered what's going to happen if I walk out in the backyard one evening and all these animals are assembled. (laughs) I think it's a possibility. This, uh, This week I have wondered about what happens when God doesn't hear my call or what is going on when I believe that God doesn't hear my call, when I don't see or hear God answering me. The scripture passage for us this morning is from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. It's in chapter 13, and it begins with verse 5, goes through 13. This is one of the stories of King Saul. The scripture says this, The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that they were in distress, for the troops were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves, the Israelites hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time that was appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people began to slip away from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well-being. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to meet him and salute him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So many times in my life, I have surveyed the circumstances that I find myself in. And I have deemed this situation to be hopeless. When I was a sophomore in college... I sat in my calculus class, pencil on my desk, prepared for my first calculus exam. And the professor came into the classroom. She passed out the exams. There were four questions on the exam, and the instructions were very detailed. But the instructions were written in German. (laughs) The girl beside me started crying. And the guy behind me said a word that's not suitable for a sermon, and he got up and left the class. (laughs) Hopeless. When I was in my first year of seminary, I was introduced to what was called my supervised ministry group. And there were 12 of us who were assigned to a professor and a chaplain, and we were given our placement for ministry. Our placement for ministry was to be a hospital. I immediately recalled all the times that I had tried to enter a hospital and failed because I would faint. Hopeless. (laughs) Thirteen years ago, 
I found myself to be a constant companion and food source to a colicky baby. I was amazed how long and how loud that child could cry. I tried everything to make the crying stop. I changed my own diet. I put her to sleep in a car seat. I would put her in her car seat and then put the car seat on top of a running clothes dryer. I would feed her and hold her and turn on the hair dryer and leave the hair dryer on the floor. I would stand up and hold her and vacuum the floor, even though the floor was completely, perfectly clean. And yet she still cried. It seemed hopeless. And there I stood at the head of a casket inside a 32-year-old man. We had gathered at Fort Sam Houston for the only service that was scheduled to remember this young man. All eight of us. That included me and the two servicemen. Did anyone love this guy or even like him? Was anyone going to miss a 32-year-old man? Hopeless. I think I get the setting for the scripture. Oh, I've never been to Gilgal, but I get it. I can see what's happening for King Saul and for his men. Earlier in 1 Samuel, the scripture tells us that Saul assembles 3,000 men to fight the Philistines. And some of those men attack a Philistine outpost. But this is like a bee sting or a mosquito bite to the body of the Philistine army. It gets their attention. What's that, they say. And the Philistines assemble to fight Saul and his army of 3,000. Remember the scripture said there were 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops that were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And the scripture says that then the Israelites decide to hide anywhere they can find. They're hiding in caves and tombs and cisterns. And Saul, the leader and the king that the people ask for, perceives that his people are slipping away. So when Samuel, who is the priest, doesn't arrive on the seventh day and it's time for the burnt offering, Saul goes to the high place and he makes the offering himself. And this is an attempt, he admits, to manipulate the situation, to gain the Lord's favor. Samuel's assessment then is that Saul has acted foolishly. He didn't keep the Lord's command. I have considered Saul's situation, and I think I know what got in his way. I think I get where he goes wrong. And it's not because the scripture specifies the mistakes of his heart, and it's not because I know so much better. But it is because I've been there. And I can tell you what gets in my way when I'm waiting to hear from God in the midst of hopeless circumstances. The first thing that gets in my way is pride. Jack Deere wrote a book called Surprised by the Voice of God. And in this book, he has a whole chapter on the issue of pride. He says that pride is the most powerful hindrance to hearing God's voice. 
And pride can be defined two different ways. The first way to define pride is the way that we all consider pride is simply thinking too much of oneself or self-exaltation. This is the pride that places us in unholy competition with other people and with God. Everyone, everything, God becomes our rival. Now, I don't believe that this is the kind of pride that plagued Saul. It is, however, the kind of pride that falls Goliath in just a few chapters later in the book of 1 Samuel. Remember, Goliath yells to the ranks of Israel, Why did you even come out here for battle? What were you thinking? You're pitiful. Here, I'll give you this deal. You pick one man from your ranks to come fight me. And if he happens to kill me, well, we'll be your servants. But when I kill him, you will all be our servants. So this pride of self-exaltation, it usually doesn't work out too well for people. It didn't work out too well for Goliath. I believe it's because no one can really survive being their own God. It's a very brief reign. However, I do think that it's fair to say that Israel's pride, Israel's pride of self-exaltation, sets Saul up to fail. In chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, the elders of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, Give us a king. All these other countries around us have a king. And Samuel, we just have you, a priest, but we want a king. Give us a king. Samuel consults with the Lord, and the Lord says to Samuel, It's not you, Samuel, that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And this, I think, is the key to the pride of self-exaltation. Where in my life am I dethroning the Lord? Where am I easing his crown onto my head? It really isn't an easy thing to see. Jack Deere writes, I regularly see pride in other Christians, but I seldom see it in myself. (laughs) What I call pride in them, I call in myself a concern for the truth or the desire to get things right. The proud seldom seriously ask God's opinion because they are convinced they already know what God thinks. So I see a picture of a child dressed up in a king's attire and none of it fits. The shoes are too big so the child can hardly move. The crown obstructs the view and the train of the robe trips them. But self-exaltation is not the only way that pride can get to us. The other way that pride distracts us is when we think too little of ourselves. It's the person who says, I may not be much, but I'm all I ever think about. (laughs) This is the kind of pride that often falls me. And this is, I believe, the form of pride that plagues Saul. Saul is, the scripture tells us, in stature, a very impressive guy. He's handsome and he's tall. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. But when Samuel goes to introduce Saul to the tribes of Israel, the king that they had asked for, the scripture tells us that Saul, this man whose head and shoulders above everyone else, tries to hide himself among the baggage. That takes some effort. 
It's as if he knows from the very beginning, or he believes from the very beginning, that he's not up for the task, and this paralyzes him. And so the question for me with this form of pride becomes, where in my life am I so focused on me that I am paralyzing myself, that I am keeping God from working in me? For many of my adult years, I didn't try things that I couldn't do well because I couldn't do them well. I'm trying to beat that thought pattern and to be more adventurous. About a year ago, my family was out at a dude ranch, and some of the dads and kids were shooting skeet. And as I walked by the field, someone said, one of the dads said, Hey, Dinah, you want to shoot? But it was kind of like a joke, because they knew I wouldn't say yes. But I said yes. And I took the gun, and I fired off several shots. And when I handed the gun back to the ranch hand, my father said, It's a safe morning for clay pigeons. (laughs) I understand hiding among the baggage. I understand what it's like to be paralyzed. But I believe that God wants more. God wants more for me. God wants more for you. God wanted more for Saul. Another heart mistake that keeps me from hearing God is fear. A friend of mine recently asked me to watch a movie called Grief Walker. And Grief Walker is a documentary about a man who counsels those who are close to death. And one of the things that he says in this documentary is that people are not so afraid specifically of death. But that there's something else. There's something else that we as a culture believe is involved in the dying process that we're afraid of. He says it's the number one fear in the United States. You know what it is? Pain. Pain and suffering. The fear of pain and suffering. I have that fear. And I think Saul has that fear. And Saul's men have that fear as well. I was driving behind a car this week that had a bumper sticker on the back that said, I will be happy today. And I thought, oh, that's a nice sentiment. We were on Harry Wurzbach, and I was driving in the left lane, and we got to this busy intersection, and there was no turning lane. And then the car with the I will be happy today bumper sticker decided to turn left. And I don't know how happy the driver was, but I wasn't very happy as the light turned red and I couldn't go straight. Many days I wake up with that sentiment on my mind. I will be happy today. You know, there are a few things that never make my day's agenda. Things like pain, (laughs) strife, dilemma, suffering. Those are not things that I'm looking to add to my day that I'm hoping for. Yet, for whatever reason, God doesn't want to completely protect me from unhappiness. When is it, I wonder, that we decided that the presence of pain meant the absence of God? Probably about the same time that we decided prosperity meant God's presence. We all know that's not true. You know, prosperity theology I like to blame on 21st century evangelists. But I believe it's much older than that. If you look at one of the oldest stories in the Bible, the story of Job, you find it. Remember, Job is suffering. 
And his friends decide to start wondering why Job is suffering. And they decide that Job is suffering because God has abandoned him. And what they say, what Job have you done to have God abandon you? At the very end of the book of Job, chapter 42, God says, My wrath is kindled against you, friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. One of my favorite books on God's presence in the midst of despair is a book called A Grace Disguised. It's written by a man who is a pastor, and he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in a car accident where he was driving. At the end of the book, he writes this. There are three changes in my life that God has been instrumental in bringing about. The first is that I have changed inwardly. The accident has transformed me as a person, influencing what I believe, where I am going, and how I live. In the months following the accident, I spent many hours simply pondering my life, and I discovered that much of it was ugly. I saw selfishness, ambition, and impatience. These weaknesses seemed to run deep in me, and I felt powerless to change them. Immobilized by my own fallibility, I started to pray to the very God I hardly dared to trust, inviting him to do whatever was necessary to change my life. The second change has been my experience of being a father. He says, my three children really like each other. God has knit our family together and the bonds run deep. It's not the family that I would have chosen. I still wish there were six of us with an occasional visit from grandmother. But ours is a good family all the same. My children feel blessed, as do I. The third change has been the discovery that our lives are part of a greater story. The accident does remain a horrible experience that did great damage to us and to so many others. It was and will remain a very bad chapter. But the whole of my life is becoming what appears to be a very good book. It's not at all that I seek pain or that I want pain for me or for you. But I've seen the results and I know that it's not as bad as I fear. It's funny to me on this Mother's Day that the two things that get in my way when I'm trying to hear from God are also the two things that get in my way as a parent. Fear and pride. (laughs) Either I'm trying to protect my children from the things I'm afraid of, or the things they're afraid of, or I'm trying to make my children into mini-me's, win the awards that I won, or do better than I did. (laughs) I think I do best when I recognize that, spiritually speaking, I'm a foster parent. For the three souls, young souls in my house. They came from the Lord and they will return to the Lord. I just guide them for a while. They are not representations of me and they're not to be worshipped either. While I recognize my pride and my fear, they don't shame me. I believe that recognizing pride and fear in my own life just allows me to readjust my focus. Not to be so nearsighted and just to see the things that are right there in front of me 
but instead to lift my focus, to lift my eyes, to see beyond myself and above myself. The king that follows King Saul is King David. And David, we know, has many flaws. And yet he does maintain a desire to seek God's heart. When things around David look bad, he has the ability to elevate his vision, to not just see his circumstances, but to wonder what the Lord is up to. Psalm 138 is a psalm that's attributed to David. And in this psalm, David writes about pride. David says that the Lord knows the proud from afar. Which to me means the Lord knows people who struggle with pride at a distance. It's like the Lord can't even get his hands on them. We put up such a block with our pride. And David writes about fear. He says, there is trouble around me, but you, Lord, preserve my life. And he begins with praise and he ends with assurance. At the end of the psalm, he places himself where he belongs in God's hands. So I know this is a bit unusual for New Heights, but I wondered if at the end of this sermon, which is right now, (laughs) if you would stand up and read Psalm 138 with me. It is a Psalm of David. Let's read it together. I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. I will sing your praises before the gods. I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. Every king in all the earth will thank you, Lord, for all of them will hear your words. Yes, they will sing about the Lord's ways, for the glory of the Lord is very great. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Though I am surrounded by troubles, you will protect me from the angle of my enemies. You reach out your hand, and the power of your right hand saves me. The Lord will work out his plans for my life. For your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't abandon me, for you made me. You may be seated. <laughs> 